Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Esther, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first four chapters of Esther. And in the will of the Lord, we'll manage to read all of them and make a few comments as well. Uh, Esther, chapter 1, let's open in a word of prayer while you're uh, finding that in your Bibles. Father, we thank you for your word and how valuable it is in our lives to help us uh, live day to day uh, for revealing the truth of salvation and of Christ's sacrifice for us, uh, but also the tremendous amount of uh, practicality, uh, everything we need uh, for life and godliness. We thank you for that. We ask that our hearts and minds would be attentive to what you'd like to say to us through your word today, and that I would forget uh, any insignificant details that are not important, uh, anything that I had uh, in mind, that you would uh, remove it and substitute only the things you would like us to uh, contemplate from your word this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in, in preparation for uh, opening the book of Esther, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of a challenge uh, as we're only looking at the first four chapters today. And many of the key lessons that we would find in Esther uh, relate to the final chapters, the conclusions, the, the, the things we'll find later next week uh, when Brian speaks to us. So to look at the first four chapters and not tread too much on uh, Brian's territory uh, began as a bit of a challenge. So what I'd like to do today is maybe set a little bit of a background for the things we'll be hearing from him, but then also look carefully at the text at hand and see if we can't pull out a few uh, lessons uh, and a few practical things that the Lord has put here for us. One thing, two things I would like us to think about as we, we hear uh, what God says in these first four chapters, but also to remember next week, uh, two things. One, uh, I read uh, one commentary that used this phrase. It said, providence is the way God leads a man who will not be led. Okay? So providence is the way God leads a man who will not be led, meaning uh, we have so many opportunities from God to simply obey, to just do the things that he would have us do. But often we, we ignore him or seek our own way or directly rebel against him. And yet God will use circumstances and other people and situations to continue to direct his will and his plan. So we need to keep our eyes open carefully as we read this text to see how God controls the situation despite the disobedience and rebellion of his people. And not only the rebellion, but there is, there is nothing that foils God's plan uh, in, in people's hearts, in people's motivations, in their attitudes, and in this pagan, pagan culture that we're going to look at, these feasts and this drunkenness and all of this sexual immorality. God continues to, through all of it, just direct his plan to fruition. As some have said, God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And that's what we'll see uh, here in this story. And as a little bit of context, since we are in the uh, exile series here, uh, just to give us a sort of situation, a little understanding of, of why all these Israelites are here in the land of Persia, uh, to look back at our timeline just briefly uh, the Jews were all removed, right? They were, they were uh, carried away from their, their land and taken to the land of Persia. And 
70 years went by before they were able to return uh, to their land. Cyrus, in the year 538 B.C., gave the first declaration that allowed uh, the Israelites to return home. Now, when Cyrus declared that the Israelites could return home, about 50,000 Israelites returned home. That sounds like a lot. But that would have, according to several estimates, left easily 10 to 15 million Jews in exile. So 50,000 went home. Less than a percent, less than 1% of the Jews returned. There are many reasons or possible reasons for this. Many of the Jews, after 70 years of exile, were very, very old. And this was an eight to 900 mile journey back home, a very treacherous journey. Uh, in Ezra, we see Ezra pray and thank God for protection from enemies and bandits and all the dangers on this journey. So it was not an easy journey. So many of them perhaps said, uh, you know, it's not worth it. We'd rather not. And many of them were too old. And in 70 years, many of them had just grown up there. They knew nothing else. They had nothing that they felt like they were returning to. Many of them had attained uh, status and comfort and simply didn't want uh, to return to the promised land. Many of them were outside of the will of God and probably did not feel the need to return. So that's the situation that we are in as we look into this story. Millions and millions of Jews displaced from where God would have them. Not now merely as punishment, but also just as rebellion from the opportunity given to them to return. So let's begin reading in Esther chapter 1 and we'll start in verse 1 now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and we'll stop there Ahasuerus there are several suggestions as to who this king might be um, several different names given the first thing to note is that Ahasuerus is more of a title, like the term Caesar. Uh, so the name Ahasuerus is, is a title, not so much a name. It means more uh, a high king or venerable king. The most agreed upon and most likely king uh, for this name would be Xerxes I. And that is what puts us in the timeline that we just talked about with uh, millions and millions of Jews left in the land um, rebelling against their return. And in verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shusan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. That's quite a feast, right? 180 days of drinking and partying and looking at all of his glory. The, all, all the princes and powers and everyone from across the land was here representing all these different provinces, right? 127 provinces were represented at this feast. Uh, and according to history outside of the, the scriptures, uh, at this time, the king was uh, preparing and persuading an invasion that he was going uh, to, to, to initiate in, in the years coming. And this huge feast was to gather support and show off his uh, riches and his funding and his preparation for this invasion. 
In verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains, fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered that all the officers of his household, that they should do according to each man's pleasure. This seven-day feast may have been the a, a capstone week upon this 180-day feast in which he allowed not only the nobles and princes, but uh, all of the common folk to his, join in as well. Uh, and we hear just the extravagance and the opulence here. Um, beds and couches of gold and silver, the pavement made a mosaic of precious stones. And although it is not the explicit intention, I think there's an important reminder. One of the first uh, key things that we can use as an illustration for ourselves here in that each vessel from which they drank was different. No, No two of them were the same. Each one was unique. And they didn't even, it specifies that they weren't required to drink. Okay, so uh, unlimited amount of cups and vessels to choose from and not even the compulsion to drink. Well, what did we do this morning? We took of one cup, right? And it's the cup that we were commanded to take from. This stark contrast between what the Lord has commanded us to do, taking from one single cup. We don't have all these options. We don't get to choose from uh, this religion or that belief or this system. God has given us a specific cup that we are to drink and we are commanded to drink it. And yet in this pagan culture, you could either drink as much as you wanted. You didn't have to drink at all. And all of these options uh, were there present for us present for them and so here they are uh drinking some of them after six months probably fairly drunk i would say is a safe bet and uh what does the king do uh we'll look at introducing a new character here queen vashti uh so during the king's feast queen vashti in verse 9 also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to king ahasuerus on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded uh, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show off her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold." But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and anger burned within him. It is not explicitly mentioned in scripture, nor is it pivotal to the story. uh, But I'll mention it because it's it's commonly wondered or questioned about why she refused um, his request. And many have suggested that he asked that she would come wearing only her crown. Now, this is not in the scripture, and the idea comes from what are called the Targums. So the Targums were oral traditions of what was written in the Hebrew scripture 
translated and written down in Aramaic. So the, these, these basically speakers or, or preachers would, would tell the story of Esther. They would speak it in the Aramaic language. And it, although it wasn't supposed to be written down, sometimes they were written down. Uh, there were th- two copies written in Esther, called, and these are called the Targums of Esther. Uh, and in these oral traditions, both of them added in that specification that she was wearing only her crown. This is not from the scripture. It's merely an oral tradition. But that's where this the idea and suggestion has come from. Could it be? It could be. But it is not what is taught in the word of God. So we are left to speculate and not uh, teach that as a fact. But we do wonder why she was uh, refusing to come. It may just simply have been that her drunk husband wanted to show her off and she didn't feel like being displayed in that way. But he is furious by this. And in verse 13, the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsena, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukin answered before the king and princes. Queen Vashti is not only wrong the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. There will be excessive contempt and wrath. This seems a little dramatic that he says, today everyone will know and everyone will disobey their husbands. So he seems to be sort of setting up a rather dramatic uh, potential outcome from this. And then he makes his suggestion in verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall no more come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree Uh, which he will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great. All wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mimukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak the language of his own people. And chapter 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, into the the woman's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. There's also a great deal of speculation and and questioning and wondering uh, as to whether these young, beautiful virgins were collected, whether they were, you know, forcibly obtained or whether it was merely 
um, a talent call for beautiful young women. Some have suggested that it was a a beauty contest to be entered willfully, uh, but the scripture does not specify. There are, I believe, I would suggest hints that it was um, perhaps strongly, strongly suggested, um, but that's not taught in the scripture, and so we can't base any conclusions on that. Which is also interesting to note that in situations like that, we know that that is not the point of the story, right? The Spirit of God has revealed everything we need to to have to understand what we are supposed to understand about the story. So while it is uh, fascinating and, and enriching to study these things and to look into them, as far as finding out the application and the intention of the text for us, those things are not to be distracting to us. We do know that virgins were brought to the king, and that's all, that's all we need to know about that. In verse 5, in Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been uh, captured with Jeconia, uh, or Jehoiachin, as a lot of versions might say, uh, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Another uh, brief historical thought or point there, uh, Esther was his uncle's daughter, which makes them cousins. So often people think uh, of Mordecai as Esther's uncle, um, which originates in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of scriptures where they call Mordecai her uncle, for reasons unbeknownst to me, and many of our scriptures are now, or our modern translations are based on that Latin, Latin Vulgate and have put forth this idea that Mordecai was her uncle. But the original Hebrew scriptures uh, have them as cousins. So he has raised her as his own daughter in verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was also taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, it says she was taken, but again, we can wonder, is this something she had volunteered for? Is this something Mordecai had suggested to her? We'll look a little bit more at how they behave and start to wonder what their motives were in this situation. Now, the young woman, Esther, pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. uh, Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. So here's our first clue into their motivations and their intentions here in the land. First, that Mordecai charges her not to tell anyone that she is a Jew, at the same time hiding her religion and her belief. Not only does Mordecai command it, but Esther complies. Now, it's it's good that Esther was uh, willing to obey, in a sense, the, the man who had raised her. But when it comes to denying or hiding your faith, that would be something we would hope would be above mere human familial ties. But he tells her not to to reveal it, and she is willing to not reveal it. To me, I only see two possibilities 
for, for why that would be. One would be fear that they would not want it to be known for the sake of her life that she uh, was a Jew and that she did not follow the customs and belief systems of the land, which would be a sinful and shameful rebellion against God to hide that uh, truth. The other one, not fear, but excitement. The possibility of winning a contest and becoming the queen. A thrill, something she didn't want to um, didn't want to lose that opportunity by revealing her her ethnicity and, and possibly disqualifying herself. It doesn't tell us. But either way, this indicates a denial of God and, and a poor attitude and moral, uh, a very low moral standard for both Mordecai and Esther. Verse 11, every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for women. For thus were the six or for thus were the days of their preparations appointed, apportioned rather. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Our culture makes some jokes about women taking a long time to get ready. But they took 12 months, 12 months of preparation to go meet the king. I think this was partially to instill in them the significance of the event. That they were going to be with and before and in the presence of the king, right? Twelve months of preparation. Verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And the women were probably taking things like jewelry and um, perfumes and, and things like that, things they would uh, take to, to beautify themselves again and further. Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Verse 16. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Uh, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, 
doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, in a way, has saved the king's life now. And it's written down, and Brian will get to speak on that a little bit, but let's remember that Mordecai had this opportunity to overhear this plot to assassinate the king and foiled it. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now we see the first glimmer of hope, the first uh, moral sparkle coming from Mordecai now that he finally confessed that he was a Jew. So he refuses to bow down to Haman. Why? Perhaps because he, he considered it some, some idolatry to, to bow down and pay homage to, a, to another man. But merely bowing to someone was not explicitly forbidden um, as a courtesy. Uh, so perhaps he felt that it was more worshipful and didn't want to partake. But what's interesting to look at and, and see from, from elsewhere in Scripture is that Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite. So this refers back to a story when King Saul uh, was going up against the, is, is one of Israel's greatest enemies throughout the Old Testament, the Amalekites. Many, many chapters and many books of the Old Testament have these terrible battles and wars and fights with the Amalekites. And Agag was a king of the Amalekites. God had commanded Saul to, to kill the Amalekites utterly, to totally destroy them entirely wipe them out but Saul kills most of them he captures the king and he saves the best of the the flocks and the sheep uh, thinking that he's going to make a, a wonderful offering and sacrifice to the Lord or at least that's what he tells Samuel when Samuel shows up and says Saul why didn't you obey the Lord why didn't you utterly destroy the Amalekites and so King Agag is spared by Saul in Saul's rebellion and defiance to God, uh, Samuel does not spare Agag. So Agag is still, as the scripture says, hacked into pieces, but not by Saul and not in a, in a way that honored God. So this man, Haman, is the descendant of the people that Saul was ordered to annihilate and to destroy. Mordecai was the descendant of the man that failed to destroy them. So there is this centuries old. Uh, Mordecai would have known the scriptures. This would have been something that all the Jews knew. Um, this centuries old uh, despised rivalry between these two names. So not only perhaps did he f not want to I, I worship in a sense in an idolatrous way Haman, but really just hated the guy. 
hated his whole his whole family and his whole lineage. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. That's millions and millions of Jews. And Haman's attempt uh, through Satan to continue the work that King Agag had failed so many years ago. In the first month, verse 7 now, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot. Now, we'll, again, Brian will get to discuss this with us, but Pur is uh, a singular verb meaning lot, or not a verb, uh, a singular noun meaning lot. And in the Hebrew language, when something becomes plural, you add im to it. So pur im, purim, right? The feast of purim is based on this lot that was cast by Haman, which, five-second side note, is where we get seraphim and cherubim from. It's a plural word, so we don't have cherubims, we have cherubim, just so you know. Um, So the the lot is cast uh, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So he's casting this lot, hoping that his uh, gods will direct him as to the best time to annihilate the Jews, which is ironic because as we remembered from our our, um, preceding thoughts that this is a story of how God controls, the true God controls all of these events to work his will, right? So Haman casts a uh, lot that he thinks is going to be a pagan sign as to when he should destroy the Jews. And we know, of course, that God uh, controlled that for his will and his plan. In verse 8, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. 10,000 talents of silver was about 375 tons of silver, which was, according to extra, again, outside of the scripture history, about half of the empire's annual income. Today would be roughly three to $400 million dollars. To destroy the Jews. This tremendous, tremendous amount of money. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. It's not clear whether he took this bribe or not because he says the money and the people are given to you. Uh, But he does allow it either way. In either circumstance, whether he took the bribe or not, it's a chillingly casual approval to murder 10 million people. Verse 12, the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. All the letters were sent by couriers into the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, 
in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Just to make sure that all of the enemies of the Jews had enough motivation, uh, they, they specify that after you murder them, you can steal all their stuff. So, uh, ensuring that on this day the whole land would come together against the Jews. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king, king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. So the king and Haman say problem solved. Everyone else is confused as to why 10 million people are going to be killed because Mordecai wouldn't bow down. And finally, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned that all, uh, all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth. Fasting. So now we start to see implications of fasting and prayer, and presumably uh, to God. So the, the, the Jewish people now are God's, again, providential plan is starting uh, to create some sort of response in his people. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. And Esther called Hadhak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Mordecai refuses her clothes, and she, uh, she doesn't know why. She doesn't even know why he's warning at this point. She hasn't heard the decree. Um, but again, we could also see uh, a parallel to, to, um, to what we see in our world there as well, this, this idea of being in a, a danger that maybe you're not even aware of and attempting this, these outward steps, right, to look uh, proper, the, the religion and the, the works and the behaviors that we could look clean on the outside, even though inwardly um, we could be, you know, tombs and graves. So he refuses, and she sends Hadahak to go find out why. He went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and in verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hadhak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So now Mordecai implores her to reveal her ethnicity, and who she is. Esther spoke to Hathak, verse 10, and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. It's ironic that there's a law going out to kill all of the Jews, and as a Jew, she's afraid of being killed 
to ask that she's not killed. So Mordecai uh, clarifies this to her and makes sure she understands what she's saying. And he tells Hadhak to go back to Esther in verse 13. He says, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows if you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night, or for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Mordecai tells her, you might have come into the kingdom for such a time as this, which is the pinnacle of the idea that even through rebellion and, and poor attitudes and, and low moral standards, God works his providential plan. God was not pleased or delighted that Esther had denied who she was and, and all this sexual sin and all these things that had been occurring in Esther and Mordecai's life. And amongst all the Jews, and yet that was exactly what God is going to be using now to give Esther an opportunity to go before the king and redeem her people, to offer deliverance to them. And it's, a, again, a stark contrast between the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who comes down not fearful of his life in any way, handing it over, uh, versus Esther's concern for her life and her fear of losing her life in this situation, and yet... Uh, Mordecai says this might be the, the reason for all of these preceding events. And again, we'll see the conclusion of this next week and, and what happens as Esther goes to speak to the king and the other lessons to be learned there. But the, the main takeaway, the one thing I'd like us to, to remember from this, which will be solidified even more next week, is that obedience is much quicker and much easier and much more pleasing to God, right? We, we can think not only, there's, there's so many opportunities that Israel had to just obey God and avoid this, this terrible threat, this terrible situation that they were in. Uh, first was 40 years, uh, about 40 years prior when Cyrus had already decreed that they could just go home and less than 1% of them listened. They rebelled, they didn't obey. Further back than that was Saul, right? Saul's opportunity to obey God and destroy the Amalekites utterly, in which case Haman wouldn't have even been born. But in their stubborn rebellion, as, as we often do, we don't want to make, um, we don't want to point at the Jews too much because they are no worse than we are in our rebellion and our disobedience to the Lord. But in, their, uh, in, in this particular story, their rebellion and obedience, uh, disobedience cost them so dearly, so much time, so many lives, because they simply didn't obey the Lord when he had first given them those commands. Let's close in a word of prayer and ask that uh, the Lord would help us to be sensitive to his will and to be obedient to it. Because a lot of times, not only do we need sensitivity, but we need then the uh, courage and boldness to actually obey what we've heard from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these 
easy to read, wonderful stories that you've given us to help us understand uh, who you are and how you operate and the things that you want for us. And we thank you so much that it is your will that we have the peace that surpasses understanding and that we are uh, perhaps not in a material, worldly sense, blessed and provided for and taken care of, but in a spiritual sense that we know uh, everything is ultimately uh, working together for good. And we thank you for that, that we would, uh, those of us who have come before Christ and accepted that uh, life that was laid down willingly, confidently, boldly for us, that we can trust in the outcome of obedience and that we would have the boldness and faith to obey. Help us to be people that pray more and more in prayer constantly, uh, that we would understand your will and that we would be strengthened to carry it out. Uh, Please keep us safe this week that we would remember the things we heard this morning and be ready to hear the conclusion of this story that you've included in your word for us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.